Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Solving the Puzzle with Dr. Datis Karazian, informing you about evidence-based strategies for autoimmune disease, brain health issues, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, gut health problems, and many other chronic health conditions. Solving the Puzzle is based on Dr. Karazian's more than 20 years of experience working with patients throughout the U.S. and Europe. His exhaustive review of scientific research, his own published peer review research, and clinical models he has innovated through trial and error in working with thousands of complex patient cases. In Solving the Puzzle, Dr. Karazian discusses the impact of diet, nutrition, lifestyle, mental and emotional states, and nutraceuticals in managing chronic health conditions, teaching you about strategies hard-won through decades of clinical practice and research. Dr. Karazian's goal is to inform you about effective models for so-called mystery symptoms and conditions so you can regain control of your health and your life. If you enjoy this podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at drknews.com. Hi, everyone. Today we're going to talk about uh, gluten and its impact on chronic illness. There's been a lot of questions regarding gluten um, in our previous talks, so we thought it would be a good idea just to focus on talking about gluten and how it impacts uh, chronic disease and also how to get it appropriately tested, but what are the issues with testing? What's the difference between gluten sensitivity versus celiac disease? Has gluten sensitivity actually increased in prevalence? Is it just the trendy diagnosis right now? Um, how does gluten impact various conditions versus other conditions? So those are all the things I'm going to try to cover. Um, some fundamental basics maybe for, for the first 20, 20 to 30 minutes. And then uh, I'll take questions for all of you that are, that are, that are joining uh, uh, this presentation. So the, the first thing to really understand about gluten sensitivity and uh, how it really plays in the big picture is to first realize that when you when you look at the immune reaction to wheat let's start with that wheat has two main two main portions that are very immune reactive uh, so when you take wheat and you break it down one one arm of of um, of wheat is lectin and lectin uh, is a very sticky portion of the of the wheat compound and lectins um, in gluten are called wheat germaglutinin. And there are some people that are extremely sensitive to wheat germaglutinin. It's the lectin portion of wheat, and it's different than, than gluten. So when you look at wheat, there's a lectin portion, which is wheat germaglutinin, and then there's the protein portion of wheat, which is gluten. So let me first talk about that really quickly. Now, when people eat wheat products, um, some people that react to them have reactions to the protein portion, which is the gluten portion. And then there's some people who react to the lectin portion of wheat, which is wheat germaglutinin. Now, this is really important, especially if people have autoimmune diseases, because people that react only to wheat germaglutinin, the lectin portion of it, lectin is a glycoprotein. So it's a sugary, starchy protein. Um, they won't show up for sensitivity to gluten, and they will not show up for celiac disease, but they'll have significant immune reactions whenever they eat wheat products. So one of the common things we see is we'll see in the healthcare system, we'll see patients that have an autoimmune disease or an inflammatory condition, and they get tested for celiac disease or gluten sensitivity, and they test 
negative. Like they don't have any issues with, with the celiac disease or gluten. But whenever they eat wheat products, they feel a reaction. And part of the reason could be that they actually have lectin responses to wheat, which is wheat germ agglutinin reactions. Now, those can be identified with lab tests, but you have to measure antibodies specifically to wheat germ agglutinin in order to find that. So that's that's a very important concept. So you have wheat, uh, and then you have the lectin portion, which is own independent immune reaction. And by the way, the, the reactions with wheat germ agglutinin, this lectin portion, is highly prevalent in autoimmune diseases, especially joint autoimmune diseases. And there's also been studies that have shown that wheat germ agglutinin, um, the lectin portion of, of wheat, not the, not the gluten portion, but the lectin portion of wheat um, can cross-react with uh, nerve growth factors in the brain and, and play a really significant role in brain inflammation and things that decrease neuroplasticity. So we definitely see a lot of people that have reactions to lectins. Other lectins would be people that react to tomatoes and eggplants, foods that have seeds in them, nuts or seeds, uh, legumes, um, and they're very common in the autoimmune disease population. So just because you have a negative celiac test or negative gluten antibody test, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not reacting to wheat products because you may have a, a wheat germ agglutinin reaction. Okay, so let me, I mean, I hope I'm not going too slow. I'm just trying to break down the big concepts here. So, uh, I can get rid of some of the confusion that is taking place uh, with gluten. So that's that's the first key concept. So wheat, half, uh, half a portion of it is lectin, which is own independent reaction, and then you have the gluten portion. Now let's talk about the gluten portion. Now gluten uh, um, is really made up of uh, two classes of subproteins. Gluten is made out of something called gliadin, and then glutenins, and glutenin and gliadin uh, combined to make gluten. It's kind of confusing, I know, but these do matter for us because um, some people only react to glutenin, G-L-U-T-E-N-I-N. And if you don't have laboratory testing to measure glutenin, you could be tested for uh, gluten or gliadin antibodies and totally have it missed. Now, it gets even more complicated. If you look at gliadin, gliadin is the major protein portion of gluten, there are different branches of gliadin. So think of the protein as a tree with many branches. And a person's immune response or their antibody response can happen against any one of these different branches. So there's an alpha branch, there's an, there's a gamma branch, there's different branches of uh, uh, gamma and alpha. So there's different branches of the protein. And many people have gluten sensitivity and their um, antibodies are not measured against these specific branches. The most common test that people do in the healthcare field uh, is something called alpha-gliadin. And alpha-gliadin is not going to catch a lot of people that have gluten sensitivity. So when you're really looking at people that actually react to wheat products from an immunological standpoint, um, you have the lectin portion, wheat germ glutenin, you have gluten. You have alpha gliadin, alpha seventeen mergliadin. Uh, you have different uh, uh, beta and omega gliadins. You have glutenins, and those are all different proteins. So the only lab that I think does this really well is is a lab called Cyrex, which I also uh, consult with. But sometimes, if you don't have all the different measurements done, um, then you can have these gluten antibody markers missed. Now, then you get into 
some other markers for gluten, which is one of them is called deaminated gluten, D-A-A-M-I-D-A-T-E-D, deaminated gluten. And this is gluten that has been partially metabolized by the enzyme transglutaminase, which is in the gut. I know there's a lot of terms. I'm, I'm going to repeat them in different ways and make it simple. Um, but I think once you understand the big picture, um, then all the stuff you may be reading about gluten and all the different things out there can become much simpler to understand. So when you're looking at um, deaminated gliadin, that's another independent lab test that can be measured. And deaminated gliadin is basically the process of, of converting uh, gluten into a secondary compound that can be metabolized. So there are only some people that don't react to actual gluten or gliadin or, or alpha gliadin or alpha 17 gliadin or any of the other wheat germ gluten, but they only react to gluten that's been partially metabolized called deaminated gliadin. And there's also a lot of deaminated gliadin proteins in wheat products that have been processed through food manufacturing. The so food manufacturing processes um, convert gluten to a deaminated form of the protein because it's easier on their machines to process these wheat products. So they're, they don't clog up the machines as much. Our body normally does that by the enzyme transcontaminase. So... A person, again, can have reaction to wheat products because they react to wheat germ or gluten. Any of the branches of gliadin uh, or to glutenin or to deaminated gliadin. And that's why if you don't have the entire gluten, what we call proteome, the entire protein, all the different subfractions checked, then you definitely can miss a person who has gluten sensitivity. And many, many people have gluten sensitivity, especially when they suffer from chronic autoimmune diseases, chronic inflammation, um, and uh, uh, various uh, you know inflammatory issues. So then they did, they don't all have to be celiac disease. So we'll talk about that in a second. So that's those are all the different portions and subsections of of, uh, of gluten, right? Now. There's also another marker that's that's usually tested that's important to understand. It's a marker called transglutaminase. And transglutaminase is the laboratory marker from for celiac disease. And transglutaminase is an enzyme your body has that is used to break down gluten. And the key laboratory marker for celiac disease is that your immune system is, is, is uh, attacking your body's enzyme to digest gluten. It's an autoimmune disease. And people that have celiac disease have antibodies to this transcontaminase enzyme. And people that have celiac disease have an over, they have an, they call it a genetic subtype. It's an HLA-DQ subtype that makes them significantly overreactive to gluten products. Their T cells have a very inflammatory, uh, strong response when they get exposed to gluten compared to people that don't have celiac disease, even if they're gluten sensitive. So that's one of the key differences um, between gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. So let me let me say that in a different way. So if you react to the protein portion of wheat, that's gluten sensitivity. You could just react to the lectin portion of wheat, which is lectin sensitivity. So they're independent. Now, when you look at people that react to gluten, the, the gluten portion of wheat, some of them have celiac disease and some have gluten sensitivity. The key difference between gluten sensitivity and celiac disease is that there's an immune response to the body's own enzyme called transglutaminase, which is involved with uh, breaking down wheat. So people that have transglutaminase antibodies have the laboratory marker for celiac. Now, different gastroenterology um, committees and subgroups have different criteria for clearly diagnosing celiac disease. Um, 
most require intestinal biopsy to show that something called villus atrophy, where the intestines have been basically destroyed and degenerated. But now they're finding that um, 90% of the people that have transcontaminase 2 antibody have correlations with biopsy. And since biopsy is invasive, we're starting to see a trend in people just using the laboratory marker to determine uh, to determine if they have an uh, celiac pattern. Now, for true celiac, they'll have to also measure gene genetics, and um, they'll measure something called HLA-DQ, and if someone has an HLA-DQ 2 and 8 uh, genetic type, and they have transcontaminase antibodies, um, they will usually fulfill the laboratory biomarker criteria for celiac. Now, in reality, is there's a lot of controversy in the immunology world, in the gastroenterology world, of how to properly diagnose gluten sensitivity and celiac disease and it's, and it's changing all the time. So the key point is that if a person has transcontaminase antibodies, whether they have the clear definition of celiac disease by having the gene types, they have an intestinal autoimmune response. And if they eat gluten, they're going to have severe inflammatory responses because they have this transglutaminase antibody. And let me kind of put this into a clinical perspective for you. Let's say you have I don't know, three different people that all have multiple sclerosis. And there's lots of studies linking gluten sensitivity and celiac disease, for example, to autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis. Now, one person has just wheat germagglutin antibodies. Another person has alpha-gliadin antibodies. And another person has transglutaminase antibodies. So those are totally different immune responses. They, they all are gonna, they're all going to have reactions if they eat wheat products. The person that has wheat germagglutinin is going to have a lectin reaction. They're not going to show up for standard celiac disease testing. But if they eat wheat, it's, it's, it's going to drive their immune system in an inflammatory cascade. Uh, for some people, it will really be an issue for their autoimmune disease people. For other people, it won't be as significant. But at the end of the day, it's still causing significant inflammation. Then you have those that have gluten antibodies, but their wheat germagglutin antibodies are negative, and they don't have transcutaminase. So they don't have an autoimmune disease to gluten. If they get exposed to gluten, they'll get some degree of inflammation. The ones that have actual transcutaminase antibodies to gluten will have a severe inflammatory and, for sure, autoimmune response to gluten because of their uniqueness of having that transcutaminase response. So you, so you see, like even though we have three people that have an autoimmune disease, there's different reactions to gluten basing on where their immune system is making the antibodies to. The ones with the actual transglutaminase are the ones that would have severe reactions to gluten. And this is why some people will go, oh, I don't really notice difference if I eat gluten. And some people are like, oh, it completely destroys me if I eat gluten. So it has to do with where the immune response is um, as one part of the big picture. There's, there's other variables and factors of why someone reacts to gluten besides the antibody location. Um, but that's that's... Uh, a key thing to understand. So that's the big, like that's the big picture of gluten versus celiac disease and the different reactions to gluten and why a lot of people will have um, will have uh, abnormal, like negative test that's there. Now, my suggestion is if if you have any kind of chronic inflammatory condition or an autoimmune disease, you should just be off gluten. And and, and I say that for several reasons. And one of the reasons is the, is that the wheat we're consuming in Industrialized countries like the U.S. and Europe, um, Australia, are are gluten that has changed. It's no longer what they call native wheat. So let me explain to you another area of research in in gluten sensitivity. 
Um, another area of research is defining gluten as native gluten and modern gluten or native wheat and modern wheat. And they're using those terms because the protein structures of native wheat are different than modern wheat. They have found um, with uh, different types of uh, protein analysis that there's about a 3 to 5% change in what they call modern wheat. So as wheat, uh, wheat seeds have been hybridized, um, have they changed, hybridized through nature or hybridized intentionally to make the seeds be able to be more water, weather resistant um, and more bug resistant? There are different proteins in wheat, modern wheat, than native wheat. And um, this is not genetic modification. This is just hybridization through nature itself or hybridization intentionally in, in the lab to make wheat more resistant to the environment. So technically, it's not genetic modification. It's just blending different wheat seeds together to get a new protein. So modern wheat is very reactive. And there's been some studies that published where they compare exposure of immune responses with T cells to native wheat versus modern wheat. And modern wheat is much, much more reactive. So like if you're, you know, in your 40 and above, um, you know, the cereal and wheat products you ate when you were a kid and younger are not the same proteins that you're getting exposed to today. And for the most part, it tends to be a very, very inflammatory protein. It's unrelated to gluten sensitivity or celiac disease or lectin sensitivity. It's pretty inflammatory. Um, just like milk products or have casein, which is very inflammatory. Um, you know, you know, consuming like cow's milk or goat's milk is for a lot of people still an inflammatory protein. And if you have an inflammatory condition or an inflammatory disease, whether you have a traumatic brain injury and your brain's now totally inflamed and you're trying to trying to function, or whether you have a an autoimmune disease or you have an inflammatory bowel condition and your gut's inflamed all the time, you probably don't want to eat. You know. Uh, foods that are very inflammatory. So gluten uh, is very, very inflammatory, despite celiac disease and gluten sensitivity. It's a very powerful T-cell trigger. And it's a, you know, many immunologists are calling this a new protein. They're calling modern wheat a new protein. There's also another uh, area of research with gluten sensitivity, which is called haptination. And haptination means that a chemical binds to a protein and makes the protein much, much more reactive. And by the way, we talk about this uh, in our uh, um, food sensitivity solving the puzzle program. If you go to Dr. K News, we have some online programs, and one of the ones we have is food sensitivity solving the puzzle. And we talk about all different ways people react to food, and we talk about things like haptination um, and genetic modification, other things. If you have interest in that, please check out drknews.com, and there's some links for that program. We also just launched a gut puzzle program, by the way. Um, where we teach people how to uh, understand how the gut works and how it breaks down uh, all the way from swallowing down to the colon. And, and we talk about all the things like intestinal permeability and the microbiome and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And we kind of teach you the major concepts to implement diet and lifestyle and nutritional applications for those mechanisms that are involved. And then I should also mention that in May, we're launching our new online program called the Automate Puzzle. So we'll talk more about gluten and all these things and those things too. But just, 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 uh, just for information there. Now let's go back. Haptination. So haptination is another reaction to food. So what happens is there's a theory now, and some papers have been published, where they believe pesticides bind to proteins, and specifically glyphosates to, to wheat products. And when chemicals bind to a protein, they change the structure of the protein. And when that protein becomes much more reactive from a chemical, 
that's what's called haptination. So the binding of the chemical to the protein actually changes the structure of the protein. And when that protein structure changes, it becomes a foreign protein to the immune system. The immune system starts to react to it. And there's been some studies published that show a direct association between the use of glyphosates over many, many years. And as usage of them have gone up, the rates of celiac disease and the rates of gluten-related disorders have really dramatically increased. So there's some association uh, studies published with that. And also um, many uh, immunologists that really believe that the increased explosion of gluten sensitivity may in part be to new wheat proteins from hybridization and maybe a combination of haptination where pesticides are being used and they are changing the structure of gluten, making it much, much more reactive. So those are the things that are out there. Now, one of the arguments that that's out there is that you know gluten sensitivity is just trendy. It's not really a real thing. It's now become something that people are, are talking about all the time, like the Mediterranean diet at some point or Atkins diet. It's just a trendy thing. And it's not really, you know, people are only getting diagnosed with gluten sensitivity more because people are starting to look for it that it never really existed before. It's really not something that's new. It's just becoming more popular. Well, this this initial theory was really completely discredited by a study that was published. I should mention it was in, uh, it was in, uh, I think I have it here. It was back in 2009. And what they did in this study that really broke this argument is they took soldiers at Warren Air Force Base that had their blood samples collected um, from 1948 to 1954, and they had they had 9,000 uh, serum samples. Then what they did is they went and matched the same samples with age and gender and other variables with 12,000 people uh, in 2009, and, and then they looked at What's the difference in the prevalence rate of gluten sensitivity and celiac disease between people from 1950 to people now? And basically, they concluded that there was a 400% increase in reactions to gluten in the past 45 years. So basically showing that something had changed, making people uh, the same age, gender matched people in 2009 react to gluten differently than people from 1945. And, and, and that is really important. So part of this could be the haptination from pesticides. Part of this could be the um, uh, deamidation foods are doing through, through food processing process, making those foods partially digested and more T-cell reactive. And part of it could be the hybridization where these new wheats are coming from. But at the end of the day, it's, it's much, much more inflammatory and reactive than before. And also... Many people um, have different things happening like never before. There is greater intestinal permeability that seems to be going up every year uh, with people in the population, that their gastrointestinal inflammation, their gut systems are breaking down. Um, we also know in the past, uh, you know, just even the past 20 years, there's been dramatic changes in the diversity of the microbiome in the population. So people are losing their microbiome diversity and when people lose their microbiome diversity, that has an impact on their gut and how reactive they become to food proteins. They lose something called tolerance. So the combination of you know, changes in wheat proteins through deamidation, through food processing, through hybridization, through 
uh, seeds changing the protein structure through haptination, chemicals binding in combination with things like intestinal permeability and people having their microbiomes less diverse and losing their immune tolerance has then really triggered an explosion of people that now become gluten sensitive. Not all of them become, not all of them have celiac disease. Some of them just have wheat germaglutinin reactions. Some of them only react to a certain branch of gliadin that may be missed if they did gluten testing. Um, so those are, you know, the key things, you know, that you should understand about what's being published currently in the gluten sensitivity literature. There's a few other things you should know about. In the gluten re research, they've also identified a phenomenon that's called the gluteomorphin reaction. So gluten proteins can be metabolized into opioids called gluteomorphins, and gluteomorphins uh, are very addictive. So there are some people that have an adverse reaction when they go on a gluten-free diet. And this has been termed an opioid, opioid withdrawal response or a gluteomorphin response. So gluteomorphins, uh, when people congest ingest wheat, they're for some genetic susceptible, some ge genetic susceptible people, the gluten proteins they eat activate the production of gluteomorphins, and gluteomorphins are opioids that really, you know, make the brain happy, um, like all opioids do. So this causes people, first of all, to get massively addicted to gluten, and this definitely happens. Um, in uh, child developmental disorders where you see kids have to have gluten or they go crazy and if they go off gluten they feel a lot worse and they have um, some of the neurological symptoms turned on so these may be withdrawal responses there's people that go on a gluten-free diet and will come back and say i've never felt worse i've never had more migraines i've never had more symptoms i did much better eating gluten it's the same thing that's going to happen if someone is addicted to some kind of drug <laughs> like cocaine, and they go off. They're going to have withdrawal symptoms. So there is a withdrawal response for some people, and it can last for a couple weeks. So they almost have to be treated like they're getting drug withdrawals. Um, but in the initial stages, they're going to have severe uh, neurological mood reactions, and uh, they, may have, they may have headaches. Um, they may have severe bowel urgency, and their, their, their gastrointestinal tract motility is going to go crazy like never before. And they're going to feel like they are much worse um, being on a gluten-free diet. If they can get through that for the next few days, usually the first three to five days are the hardest, and then once they get to, week, to the second week, they're fine, then they can withdraw off their gluteomorphin response. So that's another key thing that I wanted to make sure that um, I talked about in this, in this talk. Now, um, let me add some other principles that are really important, because gluten is such a... Uh, extensive topic um, that there's very vari variations of this that I want to mention. Um, there's also um, people that have cross reactivity with gluten. Gluten has been shown to be very similar to other food proteins and also to human tissue. So cross reactivity is a mechanism where when people make antibodies to gluten, the antibodies to gluten are so similar to other foods that they react when they eat other foods. And the most common reaction is with milk. Casein and gluten have a very similar amino acid sequence. And gluten also has very similar amino acid sequences to other grain products. So this is why a lot of people have discovered that they can't just go gluten-free, that they have to go gluten and dairy-free. 
or they just can't go gluten dairy free, they have to do full autoimmune paleo because the protein similarities to gluten, dairy, and other grain products are so similar that when people start to react against gluten, they start to have reactions and sensitivity to these other food proteins as well. So that's another big thing. Like I can tell you in my practice, working with a lot of autoimmune disease patients, I don't do a gluten-free diet with them. I only do a total grain-free or autoimmune paleo diet with them because I just find we don't get the responses we need just being gluten-free. And that's also important because there are some people that try to do a gluten-free diet and to see if they react to it and they just continue to consume milk products all the time and they never really notice that being off gluten made a difference for them. There's also people that go gluten-free and they go to the gluten-free section of a health food store and just get all the gluten-free cookies and gluten-free products and consume all those different types of alternative grains and still don't feel better. So if you, that's another key point. If you really want to know if you have reactions to gluten and the proteins that are similar to it, you really should go off all grains and dairy um, very strictly for a, for a two-week period and see if you feel better. Just trying to limit gluten alone may not be enough for many people, especially if you have an autoimmune disease. So be aware of that. And then the other key thing uh, to mention with gluten is that not only is there cross-reactivity with gluten to um, other food proteins like grains and milk, but gluten has been shown to cross-react with um, the brain. There's, in, there's co-similarity between the proteome, the protein structure of gluten, and myelin. Um, so there's lots of reactions that way. And also with milk, proteins, and myelin because they're similar. We published a paper in the journal Nutrients, where we took 400 healthy blood donors and we measured them for all the different subfractions of gliadin and casein, alpha casein, beta casein, alpha gliadin, gamma gliadin, gluteomorphin, and so forth, the whole list of all the different branches. And we found significant uh, correlations with people that were gluten sensitive and, and also had neurological antibodies and people that were casein sensitive and also had neurological antibodies. So um, we know that there is those very strong linear uh, uh, associations that are there. And we also know uh, from a protein structure that those similarities are there. So that's all related to cross-reactivity. So those are the, the main concepts with gluten. Um, I'm going to take questions here in a second. Uh, I'm going to have my wonderful wife help me with those. But let me just point out a few things. Um, if the, key, the biggest mistake people make with gluten is that they make the assumption that if they just went off gluten for a few days, they should notice a big difference. You may not notice a big difference with gluten just going off it for a few days. So you really have to, first of all, if you're going to go off gluten, you probably should go off all grains and milk at the same time. And you should do it very strictly for two weeks to really determine if you're still gluten, if you actually have gluten sensitivity uh, and the possible reactions with these other food proteins. And if you do that, you, you would have a pretty good picture. So that's one of the key things with uh, what we see as mistakes or errors with people that have um, tried to go on a gluten-free diet for a period of time. And then the other big mistake is people people confuse with is that they just think if they um, they just get gluten sensitivity tested once who don't have celiac disease, they can eat gluten. That's not true because many people have reactions when we measure them with blood work to wheat germ glutens or these different subfractions of gluten which were involved so those are the, those are the main ones 
then the other question always comes up is like, well, when can, can it, can I go off gluten? Can I eat gluten again? And I've like heard this from the uh, autoimmune, like paleo diet people. There's this assumption, like you're going to go off foods that you react to. And then all of a sudden you can eat them again because you were so good and went off them for a few weeks. It all depends on your immune response. If you have transcontaminates too, you will never, never probably be able to eat gluten with having severe reactions or probably not being able to follow the autoimmune paleo diet. For other people, they may have just some subtle gluten sensitivities and they go off them and they're okay if they introduce them down the road. For some people that have um, wheat germ gluten antibodies, they have lectin issues and they have the gen- genotypes of certain diseases like RA, they can never you know, go off uh, eat wheat products again because of the lectin portion unrelated to celiac without feeling it. And it won't be theoretical. They'll just know it themselves. So those are the, the main things I can think about and the background. Um, I hope that clarified something. I hope I didn't confuse you more, but <laughs> I did my best. <laughs> I have uh, my wife helping me now with questions. So, Hi. Hi. Okay, um, a couple quick things to point out really fast. Okay. Um, you talked about going off of gluten, and, but people say you just go off it and then you can go back on it again? Or isn't there a, right. pro- like a healing process you need to do? You know, you, you can decorate a cake many different ways. <laughs> Depends how decorative you are. Some people have, you know, created extensive protocols of like, this is what you have to do. And you take the enzymes and you're going to do this. And then you can eat gluten. That's not necessarily, you know, fine. There's nothing wrong with doing those. You can be more thorough and take things to heal your gut, like glutamine and take flavonoids, uh, um, like gluten, like, uh, apigenin or uh, green tea, vitamin D. These things have all been shown to help the gut short chain fatty acids. They've all been shown to help with intestinal permeability. So some people do it that way. It really depends on how severe reactions to gluten are. And this is why we do lab testing. Because if we know someone has a transcontaminase 2 reaction, pretty unlikely that they're going to be able to reintroduce gluten again. Whereas if they just have a subtle gluten reaction, that's different than if they have a wheat germ gluten reaction. And if they have an autoimmune disease or not have an autoimmune disease. So, you know, for a lot of people, it, the only way they'll know is how they really react to it. And once they truly become gluten-free, someone can make any kind of extensive protocol to heal their gut and go back on it. As soon as they go back on it, they will feel it. So it's going to vary um, from person to person. There isn't there isn't a general rule. For most people, as soon as you remove the wheat protein, most people will feel better. If you don't feel better, it's not like it's not just that you just have leaky gut that needs to be healed. It's usually because you probably are reactive to milk and other great products. So um, I personally, when someone goes on a gluten-free diet trial or a grain-free gluten and dairy-free gluten diet, autoimmune paleo diet, in those initial stages, I don't like to put them on any supplements because I want to see without any other variable how much their condition and symptoms change. So my only window is to see how they respond on a completely uh, gluten, dairy, grain-free diet for a two-week window. And for some people, it's a dramatic and uh, for some people, there's other variables involved. And part of that could be like you have to go and heal their gut. Okay. So Sean is asking, yep. um, what is the best way to diagnose celiac if a person is already avoiding gluten? Well, if, if a person's already avoiding gluten, chances are they're still getting exposed. They don't even know it. Because when we've done routine laboratories on most patients, we still see, you know, you'll need to trace exposure to have a reaction. You can still see many people have celiac disease, have their transglutaminase antibodies positive despite the fact they're not eating gluten because so many other food proteins they eat still activate it that are very similar. And that would be your biggest clue. Uh, but you're going to have more false negatives if 
a person has been off gluten and they tried to go in testing. Um, so that's one of the key issues. And as a matter of fact, antibodies for a food protein like gluten can start to come down within four months. So they don't even register as out of range. So if someone's been on a gluten-free diet for more than four months, when they do an antibody test, um, it can look like they don't have any reactions. So that's one of the issues. The, the exception to that is transcontaminase, because remember, transcontaminase isn't weak protein antibodies. It's antibodies to the own tissue. It's the autoimmune target protein. So for many people, they'll still test for transcontaminase if they have celiac, even though they're on a gluten-free diet. And speaking of celiac, if one has confirmed celiac, mm -hmm. are there any other autoimmune diseases they're more prone to with celiac? commonly that you've seen. So, so celiac disease um, has been well-researched for autoimmune disease, for other autoimmune developments. And the most common ones are thyroid disease and brain. Okay. And as a matter of fact, one of the most fascinating things about the connection with gluten autoimmune diseases is that what they're finding is two-thirds of people that actually have immune reactions to gluten or celiac they don't have any intestinal manifestations, none. Only one third have intestinal manifestations. The other two thirds are only having their manifestations in their brain. And in the neurological literature, they're defining gluten sensitivity, not even celiac, gluten sensitivity as its own neurological disease. And some of these researchers have argued that gluten is more of a brain related uh, trigger than it is a gut related trigger, since two thirds of people that actually react to gluten have reactions against their brain. And um, the only reason that gluten sensitivity is, was, you know, kind of in the world of gastroenterology is because they discovered it first. But in reality, it's really more of a neurological disease. So brain and thyroid are the single most common autoimmune diseases. But there's been papers that have published that track people with celiac disease diagnosis for the next five years. And they find that if they continue to eat gluten, 100% of the study subjects developed another autoimmune disease uh, versus going off it. So you really need to go off it. To understand, the key difference between celiac disease and gluten sensitivity is you have the transcontaminase autoimmune reaction, and that means you also have a very powerful, exaggerated T-cell response when you congest gluten. And that is a major trigger for developing autoimmune diseases of all other types. So they're all common, but the most common ones are brain and thyroid. Okay, perfect. People can still react to gluten-free if only gluten is removed. That's the question, right? Yeah, well, there's, there are definitely people who go on gluten-free. Right. But they're still reacting to the gluten-free grains and gluten-free right. oats. And, That's the question. And the, other, and the other rice protein, uh, you know, tapioca protein, because um, their proteins are very, very similar. So a lot of times in a clinical setting, we'll also measure a lab through a Cyrex called the ray number four, which looks for other grain proteins, which looks for this, this cross-reactivity. And many people have it. It's pretty rare to see like gluten sensitivity doesn't have any cross-reactivity to other grains. The other key thing you should be aware of is gluten-free products are really um, <laughs> enriched with a lot of sugar, <laughs> you a, lot know, of a lot of stuff. And it's going to, for a lot of people, it has causes a very significant high glycemic response. So, you know, like the wheat bread, which is brown bread, or brown rice and white rice, and white rice causes much of a more glycemic spike. It's the same thing. Uh, when you look at uh, gluten-free products compared to non-gluten-free products, uh, there's so much of a glycemic response that many people like 
you know, go gluten-free and they're like sad and depressed and they start to eat all these gluten-free cookies, <laughs> gluten-free compounds to deal with their depression. Now they're getting a huge blood sugar spike, now having a whole new set of symptoms and then feeling worse. Then they go, I don't know if this is really helping me. And I was like, yeah, but you can't eat like 10 gluten-free cookies in a day because you're depressed. It's still right. causing a major sugar spike. So just, just some observations yeah, in the clinical funny. world. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so there's a bunch of um, transcutaneous questions. Okay. So Sarah's asking, can the transcutaneous type of celiac, so two, develop as an adult? I mean, you have your fine yes. life, and then as an adult, all of a sudden, yes. wait a minute. Yeah, so transcutaneous, so there's different transcutaneouses, two, three, and six, but two is the one specific to celiac disease. And transcutaneous two, for most people, it turns on as an autoimmune response in their third or fourth decade of life. So 30, age 30, age 40 is when most people that have celiac disease actually notice it really express. Mm -hmm. That's changing. Now we're seeing kids born and immediately have their celiac disease expressions because I think our immune system is being heightened uh, as a population, as human species, more than ever before. But the classic scenario of, of, of uh, celiac is that the genes really start to express in the third or fourth decade of life. But if you ever see a child suffering from a learning developmental disorder or um, any kind of developmental delays or is there been reactions in their gut, you should always, always rule out gluten sensitivity. Right. Okay. So now there's a bunch of questions about, um, glutens in as binders for different supplements and medications. Yes. Like, is that, does, can that cause a concern? Right. I'm putting a bunch of questions together. Yeah. You know, the key, the key thing is the, this other key thing. There are, you know, uh, modified, modified starch, modified food starch is typically gluten. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most common ingredients in cheap supplements. Mm -hmm. You know, when you see supplements that are $3 that everyone else is charging $15 for, there's a lot of red flags um, because you can't really produce a highly good product in a industrialized country without terrible fillers for that kind of price. You have to even suspect if the actual ingredients are there. So be aware of those things. Uh, most supplements, 70% of supplements or more that are brought into health food stores are not manufactured in the U.S. They may be bottled in the U.S., but they're brought in from China and India, and there's no GMP standards, and the fillers are terrible. And this is why there's what they call professional-grade nutraceuticals mm -hmm. that don't have these fillers and compounds in there, and then like what you find at the grocery store. Uh, the grocery store cannot charge, you know, cannot carry these higher-quality supplements because people are looking for the cheapest thing to buy. But there's a difference when you look at fillers. So cornstarch is a major filler, um, and there are some medications that have gluten, that have, uh, that have gluten in them. Um, initially, uh, levothyroxine used to have a lot of was known to have gluten in there. They've changed that since because of the uh, concern of Hashimoto's people with gluten sensitivity. But years ago, the the main filler was gluten. That's now changed. Uh, so don't be worried about that. But um, there are different, there isn't major studies published on drug fillers or supplement fillers, but clinically and anecdotally, we definitely see people that, that will react if they're consuming things like modified food starch or a gluten containing filler in any kind of pills they're taking. Okay. So some people are kind of confused about some of the blood tests you're talking about. Yeah. To take. Sorry. Different. No, it's okay. But someone's talking to, I don't want to mention names of things, but there's like a zonulin test or there's a fiber. Oh, right. So can you just kind of go over what names to look for as far as not that maybe company names, but when you're taking a test, what's what you're looking for and why? Okay, well, zonulin, first of all, that was brought up, is really a marker for intestinal permeability. Yeah. It's not really a marker for uh, gluten sensitivity. Okay. So it's a marker for leaky gut. Um, 
And then the markers we, we're talking about, so the, the, the classical marker that will get measured if you walk into the conventional gastroenterology office or you know, something in a medical office, they'll use the two major companies like Quest or LabCorp in the U.S. as an example. That's very similar in other countries. Uh, and the major labs will measure something called gliadin or gluten. And then really what they're measuring is alpha-gliadin 17-mer, which is one of the most common subfractions of gluten sensitivity for celiac disease, but it may not be that person's, so that so that gets missed. So this is why some labs, um, like Cyrix in particular, have really put together um, a very good profile where you measure all the different subfractions of gluten and glutenin and uh, transglutaminases. Uh, you can always go to Cyrex Labs, C-Y-R-E-X Lab, and check out array number three. You can see the breakdown of it. Um, and the reason I also like Cyrex is that they measure their their, their antibodies with ELISA, E-L-I-S-A, ELISA, enzyme-linked immunosorbonase. That is the gold standard. I personally don't like what's very popular, which is my which has become what's called the Wiedzimmer test, which does microarray analysis. Microarray analysis is not as accurate. You're going to get a higher number of false positives and negatives. So I always look at those tests with a little bit of caution, knowing that it's it's not the gold standard test and that there could be some positive and negatives with it. So I don't like to do those in my practice. And whenever I see them with patients that have had them done with other practitioners, I'm always a little suspicious of the results. Um, and also suspicious of the practitioner. Why is the practitioner not doing a gold standard test? Um, anyways. Okay, so that's a question. A few people have asked, they took that microarray test and it said they're negative to something, but then they did another test that said they're positive. So it's... Right. So because antibodies fluctuate too, they will fluctuate from time to time. Um, and then lab testing, you know, isn't 100% either. So you will have some people test positive or negative. You could have a high amount of... Uh, so if you eat gluten, you're going to have a spike of antibodies within two weeks. So if you had an exposure of gluten... And right at the two weeks it peaks, you may really have a really clear test. And then if you're not getting that gluten response, your antibody count will come down a little bit. So you can have you can kind of fluctuate between normal and abnormal just because of the foods you ingest too, even though the testing is accurate. Okay, I lost it, but basically Lisa is saying, um, if you there it is, if you get exposed to gluten, do you have any recommendations on what like not meaning if you don't have any recommendations on what you can do to recover quickly as possible, not so much take this and then you can eat gluten, but if you accidentally, you know, get a exposure and you know you're sensitive to it, is there anything you can recommend to do to help with the flare-up? The flare-up issue, yeah. Yeah. So there are some digestive enzymes that uh, that help break down gluten. Now, t- technically, just hydrochloric acid as a digestive enzyme can help break down gluten, um, but uh, there are... There are um, also flavonoids that have been shown to block the T-cell response. Um, lutein, apigenin have been shown. The enzyme that breaks down gluten, there's many different ones. The most more common one used is called the DPP-4 uh, protease. And, you know, there's all these different products like gluten, gluten-com, gluten-ease, gluten-flam, gluten-whatever <laughs> that are all <laughs> that are really containing the enzymes that break down gluten and have some of the flavonoids in there to combat the inflammatory response. Um, so those would be helpful because remember, if you get ingest, if you ingest gluten, as long as the gluten protein is there, then you're the, you can make antibodies against it. And as soon as the gluten protein breaks down, then 
there's no sites for antibodies to bind to, and then T cells and immune cells start to come down. So you want to immediately break down the food protein if you accidentally get exposed by taking enzymes like DPP4 protease. And then there's a, a, a very specific immune response with a pathway called IL-17, IL-23 that triggers severe inflammation. And uh, certain flavonoids like uh, apigenin, luteolin, aloe vera, have been shown to help. So we usually have people like load up on those things and break down, take some enzymes to help break down their food when they get those exposures. We do go over this in our gut puzzle program and our food sensitivity puzzle program. Mm -hmm. If you want some very specific instruction and like how to support leaky gut, how to understand food sensitivities and food reactions, um, you can always go to Dr. K News, DRK News and check out our online programs. Okay. So Kyle is asking Mm -hmm. um, if you can go over some of the major cross-reactive foods with gluten. He's been, a lot of people have been been grain, gluten-free, dairy-free, grain-free for for years, months. And then now, but they're still showing like there's something that they're reacting to, like their body's still being exposed to gluten. Is there anything, is that possibly cross-reactive and what are the major, like most common? Well, well, most common besides casein itself is going to be um, amaranth, quinoa, spelt, corn, rice, potato, tapioca, buckwheat, millet. Those, those, those are all cross-reactive. So those are the main ones, but those are typically, uh, you know, not involved with the corn, with the grain-free diet. Corn, a lot of people still eat corn when they go gluten-free um, or rice. That becomes the two major ones that we still see be an issue with them and milk. But those are the main known cross-reactive foods that are, that are, that interact with gluten. Okay, um, Carol is saying, should I take? Should one take a food sensitivity test before changing their diet, or do you just assume gluten free? Um, especially if you have an autoimmunity. Yeah, so trying to figure out. Right. The, this is a, this is a conversation yeah. I've had with many patients in my office. <laughs> and uh, Wait, what do you do? Well, here's the thing. The basic concept is this. If you get exposed to a food protein, the food protein, your your immune system will make antibodies, which is what they measure with a food sensitivity test. The antibodies typically peak in a two-week period. For some people, it's three weeks. For some people, it's a little bit longer. For some people, it's a week and a half. But just figure two weeks is kind of the average peak level. And then if you don't get exposure, they come down, and usually they come down within a four-month period. So that's just the general concepts we know about. Now, whether someone should eat a food and then test and not eat a food really depends on the patient. Some people will absolutely fall apart and flare up if they get exposure. So they would not want to do that. Um, other people don't totally fall apart, and they, they, they just notice that they, they get exposed. They, they don't even know they don't feel well until days later. And having that confirmation of lab test is more important to them. Ultimately, you, the patient, the person being tested, is going to have to decide, is, is it worth it or not? And if it's going to be a trigger for you, then it's not worth it. If you have a progressive autoimmune disease or severe inflammatory reaction, it's absolutely not worth it because you should probably off that food protein anyways, even if you don't have celiac, just because of the fact it's so inflammatory. So okay, it's really uh, up to the, your health. So a few people are talking about European um, grains. Oh, right. And also, if I eat gluten and dairy here, I have a massive headache, but it was... Somehow was not the case when I went to Italy, when yes. I went to France, yes. right? That's a bunch of questions I'm putting into one. Yes, <laughs> yes, it's very true. It's a very well-reported phenomenon uh, where people 
cannot tolerate gluten here and they go to Europe and they can tolerate it. So, um, again, there's different theories of this. Um, a part of it is, um, native versus modern wheat flour because we're using more modern wheat flour here than native. Another part of it is the glyphosate story. And, you know, even though like glyphosates are not, let's say it'll take France, for example, glyphosates are still allowed in France. They're, they're being limited as time goes on. And they're, I think there's, they're going to be completely removed from farming at 2020. 2024, I think, or? Something like that, 20, 20, 25, 24, 20s, I don't know, but they're in the next few years. But the thing is that, you know, the farming practices, for example, in France are different than in the U.S. So in the U.S., they'll, they'll use um, pesticides and glyphosates to clear out fields for a long period of time before they even crop anything just to get rid of any kind of weeds and, and uh, get rid of uh, prep the fields where they don't have those those exposures and practices with farming in Europe. So the soil has different degrees of different chemicals and pesticides too. So that's where the haptonation model comes in. So I think it's a combination of um, haptonation and the use of pesticides. And so for some people, by the way, that have that reaction, here's here's a simple thing that really helps them too. They look at which countries where gluten is more like uh, glyphosates are banned. And usually they find when they go to those countries, they can tolerate it. Like for example, Japan. Japan has a complete ban on glyphosates. So people that also go to Europe, they notice that they don't have a severe reaction to gluten. They also notice they don't have the same reaction in Japan. And vice versa. When Japanese people and Europeans come to America, they're like, oh, my God, what's happening? I came to America. I gained all this weight. I feel awful. I have headaches every day. And then some of them make the connection that it's gluten. And they, when they come to the U.S., they actually go gluten-free to, to stay healthy. That's <laughs> not all part. So I, I personally think it's a combination of the, the haptonation, the haptonation being the process of pesticides making gluten more reactive in combination with um, modern versus native wheat. That's involved with those countries. Now, for some people that have full-blown celiac, it doesn't matter. They can't eat gluten in Japan or Europe or anywhere because their immune response is so severe. For some people that have subtle gluten sensitivity, they definitely notice those those relationships. Do you have a personal question? Do you eat gluten? I personally do not eat gluten. Um, our entire house. Our entire family is gluten-free. I don't know. How many years now? 15. Means it's 15, uh, 17 years? Yeah, 15 or 17, 17 years. years. Yeah. But I also notice if I do get exposed in Japan or Europe, it's not nearly the same as a personal experience. Right. Okay. Um, so, if Sadie's asking, a few people are asking, so is it good enough to limit gluten? No. Hold on. Or is it only effective to remove it altogether? Okay. And people are saying, like, right, 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 right. I just have a little bit. Yeah, it depends on it. So let me put it this way. Yeah. Uh, if you, you know, first of all, gluten, just think of it as an inflammatory food, inflammatory protein. For some people, they have a resilient, let's say they don't have gluten sensitivity or celiac disease. If you eat a lot of inflammatory proteins, you just may not feel well, but it's not going to like drive an autoimmune disease or make you totally lose your health. So that's a question of how much resiliency do you have to an inflammatory protein? And some people have a lot of resiliency, especially like young kids and their antioxidant levels are high and they're producing cells all the time and they're regenerating cells all the time. They they can eat gluten and not even feel it. And, and other people, as they get older and the resiliency goes down and their inflammation pathways go up, even though they don't have celiac gluten sensitivity, they start eating gluten, they just feel not so good. And it's just because it's very inflammatory. So that's, that's, that's in reference to people that don't actually have antibodies or immune reactions to gluten. It's just an inflammatory protein. Now, if you actually have, 
like transglutaminase antibody reactions where it triggers an autoimmune response, then it has to be all or none. And uh, even trace amounts create a problem. There were some studies that show that people that have actual celiac disease, when they get gluten exposure, that their T-cell immune response stays upregulated for several months. So one exposure causes an immune reaction for several months with people that have transglutaminase. So it goes back to what kind of immune response do you really have? And this is where sometimes lab testing can be very helpful to determine it. But um, it's going to be unique from one person to the next. Okay. Um, Liz is asking, and this is kind of a big question too. Okay. Following, she's been following a strict AIP diet. It's, and she, says, she finds it very restrictive. And she's talked to a lot of people who said they have less food they can tolerate now after following the diet for a year or so. Yes. Is it like, what is, what can you do? Yes. What can you do? Good question. This happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so some people go on an autoimmune paleo diet and they notice that they're start to develop more and more food reactions over a period of time. Right. This, this is really important too, because they lose their immune tolerance um, so tolerance is a phenomenon we talked about many times uh, in these uh, videos. Mm-hmm. But uh, tolerance is your immune's ability to react or not react to foods. When people really restrict their diets, their microbiome can change. And and this can make them more reactive to food proteins. But it's not the gluten that they're missing that's causing that. It's because they're having the same breakfast every day and the same lunch mm-hmm. every day. And they kind of go, well, I can't eat anything, so this is my lunch, this is my salad. So they lose their exposure of lots of different diverse vegetables and fruits and fibers to their gut. And this is what makes them lose their microbiome and diversity, which then makes them makes them have tolerance issues. So we, we, we talk about this in our autoimmune puzzle course coming up, but we talk about this in our gut puzzle program. We talk about this in another program called 3D Immune Tolerance. So the biggest mistake people are making with with going on immune paleo for a long period of time is they're just not diverse enough in their diet. It's absolutely not because they don't have gluten in their diet and now they're reacting more. Gluten is, is very, very inflammatory. So it, it's more still with diversity than just, just gluten itself. Okay. Um, there's a couple questions on lectins. Okay. If you want to address those. Sure. Just yeah, lectin questions. In general. Well, no, yeah. like... Well, do you, is that part of the cross-reactivity? Is it part oh, of... Oh, yeah. So, lec- so lectins, like wheat germaglutinin, has been shown to cross-react with the thyroid, TPO specifically, very, very aggressively in some recent studies. Um, wheat germaglutinin, again, combined to nerve growth factors. Uh, so it, it, is, it, is, it is very cross-reactive. Um, you should always suspect lectin sensitivity if you ever have um, a marker called rheumatoid factor elevated. Rheumatoid factor is a mechanism where they look at antibodies that agglutinate and stick together. It's a process called agglutination. Mm-hmm. Lectins, the reason they cause severe immune responses is because lectins bind together as proteins. They stick together. When the proteins stick together, the shape of the protein changes, and then your immune system goes, what is this new protein? Is this the pathogen? Is this a foreign invader? And they start to react against it. So there are, there are definitely people that have, especially autoimmune people, um, and people have rheumatoid arthritis that are extremely sensitive to agglutination and lectins. And and uh, it's its own subclass. It's unrelated to celiac disease. So that's why that's why it's so important. Okay. And lectins are? So lectins are basically uh, glycoproteins that are found in seeds and nightshade foods. So tomatoes, eggplants, potatoes, uh, potatoes uh, nuts, peppers. seeds peppers all have lectins in them right okay 
And so um, this is a common question also. I'm off gluten, dairy, soy, corn, and eggs. Okay. Magda, right? Yep. But, and, but she's saying, but I have Hashimoto's. People have right. also asked us about other autoimmune diseases, yes. right? So because I'm doing all of that, does that mean my Hashimoto's will heal? Does that mean my no. autoimmune disease will heal? I've t- I'm doing this diet. Does that mean this will heal? This is a, right. it's a, a bunch of people yeah. You know, the, the problem, so it may or may not. So studies, so studies have shown that um, for celiac disease people, when they go on a gluten-free diet, they can go into complete recovery and remission. And that's been reproduced in multiple um, research studies in different regions of the world, different universities. So there, there's some people that have celiac, they go off gluten, they have significant remission of the Hashimoto's, for example. And there's other people that don't have celiac, they just have gluten sensitivity and multiple food reactions, and they go off foods, they may not have that significant degree of remission or response. Um, now remember, what happens with autoimmunity is everyone just focuses on food. That's a problem because there's more than food proteins that drive autoimmunity. Mm-hmm. So blood sugar spikes can drive autoimmunity. Uh, pathogens can drive autoimmunity. Your lifestyle can drive autoimmunity. Lack of sleep can drive autoimmunity. So there's, there's, a, there's a, it's a multifactorial response. But what happens to a lot of people is they get autoimmunity. To be quite honest, many of them feel better on a gluten-free diet, and they keep removing more and more food, hoping that more and more is going to cause the same amount of response when they first went on gluten. And it's not necessarily the case. So maybe, maybe I have a long, long answer for you, the autoimmune puzzle course, where we, I go through and explain all the different triggers of autoimmunity. And, and for example, a major one is blood sugar spikes. Mm-hmm. Like people go off all these food proteins, but they're still hypoglycemic. And every time the blood sugar levels drop, that actually activates a pathway called TH17, which drives their autoimmunity nuts. So they're off all these foods, but they're missing meals all the time. So they, even though they're off these foods, they still don't have any benefits because they're constantly having blood sugar spikes as a key trigger for their autoimmunity. Um, so it's not about removing the food, it's how food's impacting their blood sugar stability. Um, same could happen with if you have insulin surges where you fatigue after meals because uh, you have too much carbohydrates, too much sugar. You eat the gluten-free bread that's very high glycemic <laughs> and then you pass out. Those insulin spikes can still drive an autoimmune response. So, you know, food proteins are one part of the big autoimmune puzzle, but it's not the only piece. And for some people, it will make a significant impact. For other people, they'll have to do other things besides removal of food triggers to, to really get into remission. Right. But that but you have to remove the food triggers. Yeah, but food triggers is a big part of it. <laughs> okay, Desiree is saying, just commenting, she eats a, a, um, various raw vegetables a variety of different times, and that really helps her. Yep. So you have exactly. a system for that as well. That's the immune tolerance. Yeah, if you eat a lot of raw vegetables, we talk about making a veggie mashup and using a food processor to blend 20, 30 vegetables together and consume a couple teaspoons of that a day. That, for example, can really build build your uh, immune tolerance. Okay, one last question. Um, sure. I can, I can give this comment that makes me laugh. Okay. Jema is saying, I love how you make complex topics helpful for the general population. You're a blessing. Thank you. And then, oh, Lane, thank you. then Lane said, it's your superpower. My superpower. Well, thank you, everyone. <laughs> Uh, uh, we talked about a lot of terminology. I hope it didn't confuse everyone. Thank you for joining us. And uh, don't forget, if you want to stay in touch with all our talks, uh, make sure you follow us on our Facebook page. We also have uh, Instagram. And uh, and uh, uh, check out Dr. K News for our online programs if you have interest in us. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you. You can find all of this information and more at drknews.com slash podcast. There you'll find the show notes, readings, and links related to this episode. You can also find Dr. Karazian's blog at drknews.com. 
The best thing to do is sign up for his weekly newsletter, where he will update you on the latest research and clinical strategies related to chronic and autoimmune health conditions. On social, you can find him on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest with the username Datis Karazian. This is for general informational purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice. And note, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to the podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not delay or disregard obtaining medical advice for any medical conditions they have, and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. To learn more about Dr. Karazian's disclosures and the companies he advises, please visit drknews.com forward slash about.